Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you here. Those of you who are joining us via our live stream, it's good to have you as well joining us in that way. I encourage you to, each of you to take your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, to uh, turn in it to the Gospel of Luke, the third book of the New Testament, Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 20. We're going to consider verses 27 down through chapter 21, verse 4 this morning will be our passage as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 20, 27 through chapter 21, verse 4. It's our text for today. Continuing our um, walk with Jesus as he has entered Jerusalem, as he has been teaching in the temple and as he is being confronted by a variety of different religious leaders of the day. We pick up now in chapter 20, verse 27, as he faces a new group of examiners to all that he's been saying and doing. Follow with me as I read from verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this word. It is true, it is sufficient, It is your revelation to us. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes now that we may see it, that we may hear, that we may receive from it what you intend this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, it's no secret to us today that the Christian faith is one of the most scrutinized and doubted and challenged worldviews that exists. Both secular and religious people come at Christians and come at Christianity with a constant barrage of attacks or questions. That has been the case, not just in our day and time, but it's been the case for well over 2,000 years, and certainly if you even go back into the Old Testament times as well. And yet for all of these years, for these thousands of years, the Christian faith remains intact. The impact of Jesus Christ throughout the world is clear, it's visible. You can see what has taken place. It's proven, the Christian faith that is, has proven that it can not only withstand the world's questions and doubts, it gives clear, consistent, and true answers to the questions that arise from the skeptics. Well, Jesus, as we've walked through this section of Luke, and certainly, really, as you think about all throughout his ministry, he has been challenged by the religious leaders of Israel, pretty much from day one. And every attempt to silence him or discredit him has failed miserably. His ministry continues. His impact has, as we've seen, as you'll see even through the book of Acts and in Luke's second book, the book of Acts, how the ministry of Christ reverberates well past Jerusalem and has a great impact upon the nations. Think about that. The very man and ministry that the religious leaders, those who claimed an allegiance to the Old Testament scriptures, the old covenant, those who, who knew the, the promises of God frontwards and backwards, at least on the surface, the very man in ministry that these Pharisees and scribes sought to extinguish has only resulted in the message and teaching of Jesus spreading to the ends of the earth. Their attempts to discredit Jesus have failed. They've succeeded about as much, we could say, about like the Baltimore Orioles trying to win a World Series. Just not gonna happen. You can't take Jesus down. So now we come to a new group, not new in the sense of they just emerged, but new to our text. The Sadducees, the aristocrats of their day, very wealthy, pompous people. They now attempt their hand at seeking to bring Jesus down. But what happens here in this text is not only a demonstration of their failure and their foolishness, but it only further displays the authority and glory of Christ as Jesus takes on their answers and speaks clearly about the truth and the hope that we have in him. One of the things that I think is crystal clear in the gospels is Jesus is not afraid of our questions. He can handle our questions. In fact, if you're here today or if you're watching our, our live stream and, and you're trying to think through this, this Christianity thing, let me just encourage you, friend, that Jesus is not afraid of your questions. No matter how, 
how, how combative or confrontational they may seem. Jesus is not afraid to, to receive your questions and, and the church is not, a, not afraid to, to receive your, your pushback or your questions or your doubts or your fears, but rather bring them openly and, and, and consider what the Lord Jesus would say in response. As Jesus continues to be questioned, he, he defends himself and at the same time he's defending himself, he's instructing his disciples. It's a beautiful thing. He's, he's responding to the questions, to the doubts, to the, to the trap, if you will, of the Sadducees. But as, as he's doing that, he's discipling his followers. He's teaching them. He's teaching them some very important things. And so as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see several things from this text. As Jesus defends the truth, in light of the Sadducees' questions, we're going to see several things from this text that, that further grounds the people of God theologically and encourages us in faithfulness. And these are two things that I think that we find from this text. As you, as you see Jesus responding, he is again highlighting the, the, the foundational aspects of, of, of doctrine, sound doctrine of, of truth. He's, he's responding with truth and he's exhorting to faithfulness. In essence, we could say that Jesus is instructing his disciples to build their lives on truth and to live it out in faithfulness. We're gonna walk through this text and see exactly how he does that. He does it, we're gonna, I'm gonna say in three ways in this passage, a clarification, a confirmation, and a contrast. He encourages his disciples, grounds them theologically, encourages them in faithfulness through a clarification, a confirmation, and a contrast. Let's walk through these things together this morning. Number one, a, a clarification, a clarification to ground us in the promise of Jesus. And you see that there in verses 27 through 40. Jesus is approached by the Sadducees and we know that they, they confront him with another question. The, the Sadducees were another religious party in Israel that had some responsibility in the temple. They were an odd bunch. Uh, they, they showed just how... Uh, uncommitted they were, we could say, to, to the Old Covenant, to the Old Testament scriptures. They were typically very wealthy and, and had pretty much a, a materialistic outlook on life. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they were largely a very politically motivated group and would often support the ruling power of the day as long as it benefited them. They did give a, 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 some kind of a, a, a head nod, we could say, to the Old Testament scriptures, to the Torah in particular. And so they had some respect and regard for Moses and the, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And yet they didn't believe in the resurrection. We, we're told that specifically here in our text there in verse 27. So you, you have this very politically motivated, very wealthy, influential group of people that denied some key doctrine and they now come and confront Jesus with this question regarding the resurrection. They want that to be exhibit A in their effort to try and bring him down. And so they begin the discussion with a description of leveret marriage, which was a law that's designed, it's recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, and you could read about this law that Moses was inspired to bring to, to bear upon the people of God there under the old covenant 
And it was designed to continue the name and lineage of a man who would have died childless. In short, the law would say, if a man dies childless, his brother was then to take his wife as his own and raise up a child for the deceased brother. That was the idea. But for the Sadducees, again, a group of people that denied that there was even a resurrection, this, this kind of thing raised some, very ser- <laughs> raised some serious issues for them. And you can see their point here in verses 28 through 33. They, they present this scenario. Teacher, Moses, notice they're referring to the Old Testament, wrote for us that if the man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's Deuteronomy 25.5. Moses did say that, so they're right there. But now in their scenario, they're saying, okay, let's pretend for a moment that this guy that dies has seven more brothers, six more brothers, seven total. And that this happens to each of them. And so by the time that you get to the end, you've got seven dead husbands and one dead wife and no children. In the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be? Now you can see very clearly that this is an absurd question. It's absurd that, that, that they would raise, I mean, you might have a scenario where you have this law intact in and, and there may be two or three brothers, but seven? You can see that the extreme that they're willing to go to to try to prove a point. It's absurd. And it comes with assumptions. The assumption here is that the afterlife that they don't even believe will somehow resemble this one. And particularly in regards to marriage, that it will continue on like it is now. But these assumptions, these assumptions that they're, they're clinging to, they're only using to their advantage. They don't believe it. They're only using it to try to prove their point, which is that there is no resurrection. And so Jesus replies in verse 34 and following. He defends the fact that a future resurrection will in fact happen. And he does so with three observations regarding the resurrection. I want us to walk through this because these are important and I'm gonna save really the, the main answer for the last one. I want you to see three things that Jesus, in his response regarding the resurrection, that he affirms about the resurrections, which in turn proves its validity. First thing that we see regarding the resurrection is that it is exclusive. When we think about the resurrection, what are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about the time when, when the Lord would return, he would come again after he's ascended into heaven, that he would come again, the dead would be raised, and that they would be then judged and enter our glorified state. Our bodies would be raised and made new and then we would enter glory with new glorified bodies. And so it's that time frame when, when the few, in the future, when all of us who are in Christ would be raised, our bodies will be glorified and we will spend eternity in a new heavens and a new earth with the Lord, with new glorified eternal bodies that will never die. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the future resurrection. And Jesus's resurrection was, was kind of the down payment for that, that that's exactly what's going to happen for us. 
But we need to see here that Jesus, as he's speaking about the resurrection, he's talking about something that is exclusive. Not everyone will be considered worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead in this scenario that he's talking about. He says there, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, we're gonna get to the part where he says they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but let's just stop first right here. Those who are considered worthy. There's an indication there that there are some who are not considered worthy to attain this reality. Now he's not immediately answering their question here, but it's an important point that we don't need to skip over. It's a reminder to us that how we respond to the Lord in this life, how we respond to him and his promises in the present does impact our future. Jesus' response here, of course, begs the question, if there are some who are considered worthy to attain this and some who aren't, then how can you be considered worthy to attain it? Right, that's, that's the question that's kind of implied here in this, in this text when you hear him say that. And so I want us to, to consider that answer for a moment. I wanna do so from Philippians chapter three. If you will turn to Philippians chapter three, this is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi to encourage the believers there. And in chapter three, he says some very critical things regarding this resurrection that Jesus is defending here. So far he's saying that is exclusive. Some will attain it, some will not. Philippians chapter three. Paul is talking about, he kind of gives kind of a, a brief history of where he's been and where, what he's done. He, he, he's talking about just how religious he was, very much like these, he was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church in verse six, but look at verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So Paul is speaking of his former life as a Pharisee, a religious leader, a persecutor of the church, and now he is saying, I consider all that as loss so that I may know Christ and be found in Christ, knowing that it is through him that I am able to attain the resurrection of the dead. And so the question is, how do I attain the resurrection of the dead? You attain this resurrection so that you go into glory through Jesus Christ. You must be in Christ. He says it there in Philippians 3 verse 9. That which comes through faith in Christ. So if you're wondering this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, you're wondering, you're talking about this resurrection, how, 
Some get it and some don't. Well, how do I, how do I attain that? Well, you must understand that it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That your hope must be rooted in him and his work, his righteousness, his death on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And if you're in Christ, then your hope is firm and that then you will see your way to attain this resurrection in the future. Brothers and sisters, this, this should encourage us but it should also cause each of us to pause for a moment and consider this reality. Will you be among those who attain the resurrection of the dead to inherit eternal life? Will you be among those? And in a group this size, those watching, Likely that there are some among us this morning, some watching this morning that are not yet in Christ. And our plea to you, friend, this morning would be quit looking to your own efforts to try to somehow please God. Quit trying to, to seek salvation in some other works-based way, but, but cling to Jesus in faith and dependence upon him that you may find hope so that you can attain the resurrection of the dead and inherit everlasting life. Fellow Christians, those of you who cling to this promise of resurrection, how are you doing to encourage others in it? One of the things that we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, we like to quote this, this, this chapter, especially when we know somebody's not been attending church much lately, right? Well, Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's in the Bible. Well, it's true, it is. We should be gathering. We should be assembling of ourselves together uh, for God's glory, for mutual edification and benefit, and for a host of other reasons. But one of those reasons is here in Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews is saying, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The, the priority of that text, it's almost as an aside, he's not neglecting to meet together so that you can encourage one another towards that day. One of the responsibilities that we have as Christians, as brothers and sisters, as a church family, is to remind one another that there is this day coming when we will be raised from the dead and be with Christ forever. We're to encourage each other with that. It'll be part of our normal relationship with each other that, hey, I know things are bad right now. You're going through a hard time, but, but praise God, but there's coming a day when we will be raised and this will be no more. This is part of the gift that we have. This is an exclusive gift. It's not automatic. It comes by faith in Christ, but it is the foundation of our hope. Not only is the resurrection exclusive, this future resurrection we're speaking of is distinct. Jesus answers their question. Verse 35, he says, but to those who are considered worthy to attain it to that age, 
and to the resurrection from the dead. They neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal or like the angels, equal to or like the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Jesus shows that their question and their argument is based on a misunderstanding of what the resurrection accomplishes and does and what it provides us. It's, it's really a, a, a question that's irrelevant because they've missed the whole point of the resurrection. In this scenario, their entire argument that they're trying to put forward to debunk the resurrection was based on marriage so they come up with this absurd example, seven husbands. That assumes this, this guy's got that many brothers, right? And none of them, none of them have children. Jesus quickly proves that this misses the point. He tells them that in the age to come that it's gonna be different than the present age. There's a distinction to the afterlife, to the resurrection that, that, that's, that's unlike what we experience now. There'll be some, some similarities, but there are some vast differences. Case in point, marriage. Marriage, Jesus says here, is a temporary experience. It doesn't carry on in the age to come. The resurrection will mean an entirely different reality for us when it comes to these kinds of human relationships. Ask me to explain how it's all gonna go down, I don't know. But I know that Jesus says here that we're not gonna be married, we're gonna be like the angels, not like them, we're not, let me, side rant. Do not ever say when someone dies that heaven has now gained another angel. You do not become an angel when you die, okay? I know there's well, and people mean well when they say things like that, but don't, don't encourage people that, that you become an angel. You don't become an angel. You become like them in the sense that they aren't married or given in marriage. So that's what the text means here. You're not gonna be equal to, to angels. They're, they're these glorious beings that if you were to see one, you'd be terrified and you would be tempted to worship because they're so glorious. That wasn't in the notes, so let's see. <laughs> they don't marry. You become like sons of God, which there's an implication there that, that you have some responsibility in eternity. We know that we'll reign with Christ in some way. There, there's so many mysterious things that we just don't know the fullness of yet of what that will mean, but it will be a distinct experience. And since marriage then is not a reality in the age to come, their entire argument falls, it fails. What one experiences in the afterlife and the resurrection to come is something that transcends what we know now. And if we go back to, to Paul in Philippians 3, we know how much Paul longed for that reality. This was, it was one of his driving motivations in life that he's going to attain this resurrection one day. He, he, he had his mind set upon that. He was longing for it. Friends, how, how much do we long for this day, this, this experience which will be unlike what we know now? So there Jesus completely destroys their argument. He's like, well, you're talking about marriage. Well, there's not gonna be marriage in heaven. You got another question? It's basically what he's doing. But then I want you to see the third, the third observation here about the resurrection, that it's guaranteed. After Jesus responds to their specific question, 
he goes on to give an argument from the Old Testament as to the validity of the resurrection. This is great. The Sadducees quoted Moses, Deuteronomy 25.5. They, they quoted Moses to set up their question and now Jesus, knowing that they respect Moses, does the same. He too goes back to Moses, again intentionally so because of their reverence for the Torah, their, their respect of Moses. And he refers to the passage of the burning bush Verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. This is Exodus chapter three, verses two through six. Remember the scene there, the, the burning bush, and it's at that scene that Moses refers to the God, to, to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting, isn't it? He, he's like, it's as if he's saying, you deny the resurrection, but, but your boy Moses sure believed it. You wanna quote Moses? I can quote him too, and I can show you through this scene that he actually believed in a resurrection of sorts. May not have understood it in full, but he, he certainly believed in life after death because he refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of which who have died at this point by the time you get to Exodus chapter three. And he's declaring that he is the God of Abraham, for example, centuries after his death, which implies that Abraham is somehow in some way alive. And then Jesus circles back with God is not God of the dead, but of the living for all who live to him. His, his implication there is that yes, they have died, but they now are alive in some fashion and they will be in the future. He's the God of the living. So Jesus looks back to the Old Testament scriptures and makes his argument that, and it's just a quick one, He's like, well, apparently Moses did believe in a resurrection because he speaks in terms, even referring to the name of God and, and who, who God is God over of those who have died, but, but apparently they are alive. You see, his response to the Sadducees is one that's rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. And this is not only helpful in his response to the Sadducees, it's instructive to his disciples. The Sadducees believed that this life was it. This is all you got. But Jesus shows that that's just not the case. And he shows that we need to be prepared for this future resurrection by making sure, number one, that we attain it, and number two, that we anticipate it with joy. Friend, I just ask you, are you preparing for for this day to come. Jesus here in this, this brief encounter with the Sadducees demonstrates biblically and by destroying their argument that the resurrection is something that is true, that the Old Testament anticipated and promised. And friends, it also instructs us what our response ought to be in the midst of a culture that questions everything. It instructs us about holding fast to what is true, even when the majority of the, the world denies it. The truth will be denied, the truth will be misunderstood and even ignored, but we must be a people who cling to it in hope. 
So you see this here, this clarification Jesus gives regarding the resurrection to ground us in hope. Number two, not only do we see this clarification, we see a confirmation regarding the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus likes this game, I think, because their silence, verse 39, some of the scribes answers, teachers, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Like, nobody else is coming to the plate. But Jesus said to them, let me take my, my turn. And he raises a question, in verse 41, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? And then he goes on and we'll talk about that. But this question he raises is a theological question and he raises it intentionally to mainly raise the consciousness of who the Messiah is, specifically regarding his own identity. Now it was commonplace for the Jews to refer to the Messiah as the son of David. That was normal. Like when Judaism in that day and time, if you were going to refer to the Messiah, you would often hear people referring to him as the son of David. It was common. Everybody said it, right? Jesus knew that. And so he leans into that reality with a question in verse 41, how is it that the Messiah is the son of David? It's as if he's saying, this is a popular saying, but we need to look into that a little bit more. Do, do you realize the implications of that? So then he quotes in verse 42 from Psalm 110, verse one. For David, he says in verse 42, himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, the Messiah. So how is he, Messiah, also his son? Jesus is like, you not ever wondered about this? You Bible experts, you never thought about the son of David also being the Lord over David? It's kind of odd, isn't it? Unique. And then notice what he does. He doesn't press in harder. He doesn't give a full exposition of Psalm 110 at this point, though he could have and though he's done things like that in the past. He just leaves it there. He just lets the word of God hang there for them to be confronted by and consider. I think as an aside, that's a good point that we need to hear and see that shows us how we can trust God's word to be effectual in the lives of people. Again, he could have taken the time to expand on this and teach them. He's done that plenty of times. He could have done that. But he just leaves God's word there for them to ponder. And friends, sometimes that's a good thing for us to do, whether in our own lives or, or in the lives of people. I think oftentimes we wanna always be the one trying to make the argument, make the argument. You know, let's use all of these apologetics and all these things. These are great things, let's do that. But there are appropriate times when you just need to let people wrestle straight with God's word. God's word is powerful and applied by the spirit of God. It can bring life, it raises the dead and it can bring transformation. And so we need to, to rely upon the word of God to do its work, to God to by his spirit to do its work, to do his work through the word. I think you see that kind of exemplified here as, as Jesus just leaves that for them to, to consider. Two things that we see here quickly. Number one, the, the truth is being affirmed. 
Jesus is, is playing their game, so to speak, but he does so in order to correct misunderstandings regarding the Messiah. The point in this text, the point that this text and Jesus makes here is that not only is the Messiah a descendant of David, a son of David, he is also sovereign over David. You see what Jesus is doing? He is pointing to the fact that the Messiah is fully man and fully God. He is fully sovereign, he is Lord, and yet he is human. He came to earth as a man. It's important that we get that. The teachers of the law did not see this reality about the Messiah and it would prove to be a great error for them. Indeed, I would say that that, regarding the religious leaders of the day, that their refusal to properly understand God's word was their greatest error. Their refusal to, to see God's word and to understand it rightly in, in its proper context and application was the great error of their day. Friends, I think this is an encouragement to us is that we too need to pay close attention to the things that God reveals. God has given us his word. We have the full, complete revelation of God from Old to New Testament. All 66 books of scripture have been inspired for us to, to understand and we will spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of this, this book. And I think how oftentimes we are not much different than the Pharisees. We may know God's word on the surface, but we have never really plumbed its depths and believed its truth. Number, this is the second thing is we see that the truth is grounded. I, I think that similarly to what we see here, we can't overlook the fact that Jesus twice now in this passage, just this short little text that we've considered from verse 27 to verse 44, twice, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. Moses, Exodus three, verses two through six, regarding the burning bush to prove his point about the resurrection. And now Psalm 110 verse one, to prove his point about the Lordship of the Messiah. The Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, at least at this point, for Jesus served as an authority from which he instructed and pointed his followers to. This is not insignificant. If Jesus relied upon the scriptures to make truth claims, then that, that means that it must be our authority as well. Jesus knew the scriptures and he relied upon them. He faithfully understood them and faithfully taught them, whereas the religious leaders of the day did not, and yet they claimed to be the authority of the scriptures. What an indictment upon them. Because it can be tempting to look elsewhere for the things that we believe. It can also be tempting as a Christian in a church to just take your parents' word for it or somebody else's word for it. Or you hear this, okay, therefore that must be true, but have you really studied the Bible and read the Bible and come to these conclusions on your own? As we would commend you to do that, that, that this is really an exhortation, a side exhortation, if you will, by implication here, that the Bible is our sole authority and we must give careful time and attention to it. Jesus is showing us that this is, this is essential. He's modeling that well for his disciples. He's an example in what it means to be faithfully committed to the authority of Scripture so that you gain your worldview by its authority, not your own perspective or your thoughts. 
or your opinions. You see this very clearly here. This confirmation regarding the supremacy of Jesus is rooted in the word of God and the word of God ought to be our driving authority. And then last, this contrast. Jesus has engaged the Sadducees in theological debate. He's, they've made their argument. He's shown it to be faulty and foolish. He's referred to the authority of scripture to defend the resurrection and to affirm the lordship of the Messiah. The fact that the Messiah is both God and man. So he's, he's grounded his disciples as he's responded to the Sadducees. He's grounding his disciples in theological truth, depending upon God's word to do so. And now he's going to exhort them to faithfully follow Jesus by showing them a contrast of two different examples. Verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people, he had a captive audience at this point, he said to his disciples, so now particularly honing in on his disciples, he said, beware of the scribes who walk around with long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then Jesus, we're told in chapter 21, verse one, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their t gifts in the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of the poverty of all that she had to live on. Sometimes these chapters and verse headings trip us up a bit. And we just assume that there's a large gap between chapter 20 and verse tw chapter 21, but really there's not. I think that Luke is intentionally showing this contrast. He's showing this warning of these arrogant, boastful, prideful scribes and chief priests and Sadducees and how foolish it is to follow their example. And he holds up this poor widow as an example of piety and godliness to follow. He's clear. Do not, <laughs> beware, he says, do not follow their example. They're going to receive a greater condemnation they're going to be condemned. They're going to be exposed for their hypocrisy and held accountable to it. Do not follow them. They made much about their religious commitments about themselves. They craved attention and popularity. You saw it in how they dressed. You saw it in how they received and extended greetings in the marketplace where they sat in the synagogues. If they were Baptists, they'd be getting the back row first, right? but God is not impressed with their show. Not only are they doing this, they are doing it while they are devouring widows' houses. Not exactly sure what all that means. You can go read 20 commentators and they'll give you 20 opinions about what that means. But the point is that they were mistreating the widows. They were oppressing the widows. They were, they were holding back from the widows the care that they had needed. They were taking advantage of them and mistreating them. And the Lord says he will not tolerate that kind of thing. Reminded in James 1 verse 27 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. That's what James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what Jesus is saying is that these Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees have proven that their religion is not pure and it is defiled because of how they treat widows. 
do not follow them. And then it's ironic, isn't it? That Jesus says, actually the example I wanna encourage you to follow is one of these poor widows that they oppress. Actually look at this poor widow in the temple. He observes the temple, which is another indication by the way that, that Jesus does pay attention to your life. He observes the things that you do the things that you believe, the, th the ways that you go about your life. He, he sees it. And he's saying a true disciple is like this widow. Just even in her giving, she demonstrates her allegiance to God. She may not have much in, con in contrast to what all the wealthy have, but the wealthy, they go to the, the offering box and they give out of the abundance of what they have. The, the gift that they're giving does not cost them anything. Therefore, they show really how much of an importance God is in their life. It's a reminder to us, friends, that, that even in our giving is a declaration of what we think about God. But he says, but look at this widow. She gives all that she has. She, she, she doesn't have anything. And she gives it to the Lord as a, as a sacrifice, as a devotion to him. She's generous. No, her two little coins here or her little amount of money here is not the same as the a little bit that the rich gave, there's a lot more quantifiably there, but he's looking at the heart. He's looking at the posture of this widow. It's a reminder to us that our obedience is seen and measured by the Lord. He honors the widow and he condemns the scribes. True obedience flows from the heart and while others may not see it, the Lord does. The generosity of this poor widow, even though the amount may be small, shows how much the Lord meant to her. She wasn't like the scribes who were hoping to fake it till they make it. She was genuine. She's like, I don't have anything, but I'm gonna give what I have to the Lord and serve him and love him. It's an act of devotion and worship. And if Jesus, in fact, is what he claims to be, in verses 41 through 44 of chapter 20, if he is Lord, then it means our lives are to be given over to him in humble devotion to him. Paul said it in Philippians chapter three, whatever gain we had, we count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He is the priority. He is the one who is supreme, the one to whom we must commit our lives and follow all our days. And so, as the religious leadership exhausts their efforts to discredit Jesus, Jesus is undeterred. The truth is undeterred. He is not the one to be rejected or opposed. He is the one to be embraced and followed. He is the, the one where our hope should be established. Friends, the reason he is the one to be embraced and followed is because he is the one who's promised this resurrection and who will guarantee it. He is the one who is the Lord over all, as he, de as he declares there in verses 41 through, through 44. And he is the one who will hold us all accountable. He exhorts us to faithfulness and generosity and, and diligence and devotion and worship to him. So he calls us from this text, friends, to embrace him based upon the truth, promises, the promises of God, and to a life of distinct devotion. In reality, what we see here is a great contrast of what true, authentic Christianity looks like. It is a faith that is based upon true promises and a faith that calls us 
and exhorts us to genuine faithfulness. And that is where Christ is calling each of us to go today. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your revelation, your word, your instruction. We're grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Lord, even as we look into his ministry and earthly life and we see his interactions with religious leaders of his day and answering their questions and Lord, as they seek to discredit him, Lord, they only prove to discredit themselves. Father, we were reminded this morning that your truth prevails. Your salvation endures. Your promises are fulfilled. You keep your every word. Father, we thank you for this great hope. We thank you for the richness of what we have here in the gospel of Luke. And Lord, even as we see through the example and the instruction of Jesus today, Father, may it be a reminder to us as your people that we would cling to you based upon the truth that you have revealed to us in your word, that our hearts would depend and yield to your, depend upon and yield to your word, that we would hold fast to your promises. And Lord, even when the world may sling its questions and its doubts and seek to challenge us in every way, may we hold fast to that which is true. And may we prove in the end not to be like the scribes, religious hypocrites. But Father, may more and more of us look more like this poor widow as we believe the truth and see that truth transform our lives that we would give our all to follow you. Because Lord, you are a great God, worthy to be praised and worthy to be followed because you are true. Thank you, Father, for all that you've given us in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.